This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to the Human Animal Connection Show, where we believe we can communicate with all animals. Join us as we explore the 33 principles and healing methods of the human animal connection. As animal lovers, we know that you share our commitment to making the world a kinder place for all creatures. Together, let's embrace the transformative healing power of the human animal connection. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Human Animal Connection Show. I'm your most fortunate host, Mike Wolverley, <laughs> and I'm with Jeannie Joseph. Jeannie, we got some great things to talk to you today. Uh, hold on. Yeah, I knew what you meant. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So, we're talking about connectivity and belonging, the healing power of connection. So, uh, you know, there's a great quote from Chief Seattle, which I have to read. It says, all things share the same breath. The beast, the tree, the man, the air shares its spirit with all that it supports. Ah, I just feel that. That's right? such a nice I, feeling. Such I a can nice go feeling. take a nap now. I know, <laughs> I know. I know. I, I start my day looking at the clouds. I go out and look at the clouds. and it's Just a reminder. It's just, you know, everything continues. You know, like we think of things disappearing, coming and going, but there's something in addition to the coming and going of all a lot of things, there's something also that remains. And that's tuning into that is really valuable to us. So anyway, that's just our little bit of a little bit of the human animal connection philosophy for you and and how that relates to connectivity is realizing our connection with all that is the the nature, you know, the clouds, the sun, the sky, the moon, the earth, the water, the animals, all of that. When we have that perspective of being connected, I think it helps to ease some of that existential angst that we humans have, you know, that feeling of being alone and not belonging to anything and where's our tribe and where are my people, <laughs> you know, all that stuff that we humans go through, which is part of the human condition. But animals uh, do a little bit better with that because they have that innate sense of connectivity. And so, we can learn from them. You know, like Aristotle said that man is a social animal, um, but there's a huge range. You know, humans have different social needs. And one of the things we talk about in the human animal connection is the fact, oh, Bailey, <laughs> thank you for joining the conversation. Yes. Um, that, that animals have different levels of needs. Like it's not a given that, all okay, Bailey. Okay, Bailey, you're okay. It's not a given that all animals want to be connected with other animals. There's a man on the other side of the door doing some work, and that's what Bailey is responding to. So he's doing his work as a dog, and there goes Lulu <laughs> coming out from under the desk. Yeah, but anyway, what I was saying is that animals have a different, there's a range. And it's important if you have an animal to understand, is your dog or horse or cat or whatever an introvert or an extrovert? And Michael, what, where would you say you are on that spectrum of introvert and extrovert? Because we we both we all have both, but where do you kind of fall? Like, let's put it this way: my definition of an introvert is someone who, when they're stressed, they recharge by solo activity. So that could be taking a shower, taking a walk, reading a book, cooking, you know, doing something that is really where they're just there's a lot less mental stimulation from another person or people, and more just kind of internal state. So introverts recharge their battery with quietness, with alone time. Extroverts, on the other hand, if they're feeling a little down or stressed, they need to call someone. They need to go out. They need to do things. They need to be go have a drink in a bar, not at home. They, they want to go out and be with people. So that's how they. 
they recharge their ba- their battery. And it's the same thing with animals. You could have a dog that's an extrovert, loves, gets so much, just take me for a walk, let me meet new people, therapy dogs that just want to go and meet a bunch of kids, you know, that's an extrovert dog. An introvert dog may like prefer just being at home with their person. They don't necessarily need to go out and meet new people. But that extrovert UPS man comes, yay, let's go meet the guy, you know, let's go see the delivery guy. Um, but uh, an introvert is going to have a lot more reactivity. Yeah. Yeah. I'm definitely the introvert. Um, yeah. Situationally, I can be extroverted, but I'm more an introvert. And, you know, makes sense that Indigo is as well. She sees huh. a delivery guy and she wants to chase him off or eat him. Right. So we're, so we're, we're not going to go meet the delivery guy. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's the same uh, thing with me. I'm an introvert and I've developed the ability to be an extrovert because I teach, you know, I'm an educator, so I have to do it, but it might, it's not my natural domain. And so I enjoy it briefly, but then it makes me tired. Like a lot of people, I know a lot of speakers, they get energy from going out and entertaining a crowd and getting all that energy from the crowd. And I like, I need, I need a nap afterwards. You know? <laughs> so, you know, it's important to understand your dog, your, your unique dog in terms of whether or not they're an extrovert or an introvert. So you don't want to add a lot of stress to an introvert dog. Um, by, you know, dragging them through crowds and meeting a lot of new people. So they might be fine with their tribe, you know, the people that they know, the friends and family that come regularly or whatever, um, may be part of their inner circle, but their, their inner circle is uh, smaller. As we talk about the introvert and extrovert, we can both be situationally extroverted, but um, we're both introverted. Um, and yeah, I, I always thought of myself the other way, but I was, I was seeking something else, right? So I was putting myself out in a way that wasn't natural. Mm-hmm. So, but I'm, yeah, I'm naturally, I need quiet. I need peace. Right. I need, uh, you know, solitude at times. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So, well, ha- that's really important to understand that about ourselves and then to understand about the animals to share our lives. And if you have more than one animal, you might find one's more on one side and one's more on another side. But there's a good chance that if you rescued or adopted an animal, that you chose one that has a similar temperament. My Sophia is like myself. She is basically an introvert, but she can rise to the occasion, do her therapy work and for about 45 minutes to an hour, and then she's done. <laughs> she can't wait to go back to the car. I mean, when we get there to the school, she can't wait to get out of the car to go see all the kids and get all the love and all the treats. And then after 45 minutes or an hour, she's ready to go back in that car and be quiet and not be touched by everyone. <laughs> so we have a rhythm too in our introversion and extroversion. You know, we many of us have learned to adapt and do the one that's not as easy for us. But we've got to remember that our natural style is the one we need to go to when we need to recharge and when there's too much stress. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I wanted to ask you about social healing in humans and animals. Yeah. So this is really interesting. When I was doing work with soldiers with PTSD, one of the things that I discovered is, you know, it's, it's a very modern phenomenon to sit with one therapist in a room with the door closed. You know what I mean? That's only since Freud or whatever, about 100 or 200 years of, of that kind of treatment. But in the old days, the native tribes, like the Polynesians, when they went off to war, before they would go back to their family, they would spend some time decompressing. They would, before they rejoined the families after they had been at war, they would sit around and, and heal and, you know, just take some time to decompress. So, uh, working with that idea, I, I re- really recognize that working with PTSD, although there's definitely a need for individual counseling, I'm not saying that there isn't, but there's a level of healing that occurs in a social context that doesn't occur 
when you're sitting and talking to one person. So using the group momentum and energy was a big part of my program called Act Resilient, where I work with over 4,000 service members with PTSD. And, and this was a key concept was the notion of the group healing and the group energy supporting the person and giving room for the person to really heal and all of the things that happen in connectivity that really accelerates healing. And it's the same thing with the dogs. When you have some shelters, just a few have a wonderful program where they allow playtime with the dogs, where the dogs can be together, hopefully organized by group, like play styles, you know, like the gentle and dainty dogs are not with the rough and rowdy ones. But uh, assuming that you have some um, behavioral differences separating by groups, then it is incredibly valuable for dogs to play with each other and to be with each other and to learn from each other and to communicate with each other in ways that dogs do. And this is what really helps shelter dogs lower stress. So 20 minutes of dog playtime, dog on dog playtime is equivalent to a three hour walk in terms of burning the calories. And because you, it's not just the physicality of playing, you know, even if they're not playing rough, it's still just reading each other's behaviors, watching the signals, communicating with each other the way they do, that really helps balance the brain. So the notion of healing, yes, there's a, a place for one-on-one -on -one healing, not saying there isn't, but there's also a place for the social healing, this ability of being with your tribe or your your group, your species, and just hanging out and being together. And we see that humans clustering and sporting events or different things, you know, we see that happening. And it's really important for for many animals, not all, not all animals have the same needs for it, but many animals do. And so it's wonderful if you have the opportunity to have a safe playgroup. And dog parks are not always safe. So we we hope that taking a dog to a dog park is going to be a positive experience. But it isn't always because a lot of dogs there have issues, they're not balanced. And so the dogs can get scared. So the benefits of the of the of the dog park sometimes are not as, you know, well, just it depends on the dog park. So some are wonderful and peaceful and playful and safe, and others are intimidating and can set a dog backwards. So you really need to evaluate the dog park in general, but also the specific time that you go, who else is there. You know, if there's a dog that's really reactive, it could not be so great for your dog. But if you have a safe situation for dogs to play, it's a wonderful thing. And this is a big part of our vision of healing for shelters is to have every shelter have um, people trained in running how to work a, a safe and happy playgroup for dogs. And at our shelter, the one that I volunteer at here in Tucson, they get out 200 to 300 dogs a day in playgroups because they can have sometimes 10, 15, 20 dogs that are well-matched in a playgroup together. And it just, it's so good. You know, the, it, it's, they dogs get exercise, they get social connection, they get their minds balanced as well as their bodies. Yeah, that's great. I, I think most shelters don't do that. I know most so, well. Most don't have the time, the space, the resources, and the training. Mm -hmm. So it's completely understandable. We we wouldn't advocate for just throwing dogs into a yard together without people trained to mm -hmm. evaluate dog behavior. But in the future, this is it. There's a group called Dogs Playing for Life. It's, I mentioned them because I love them. They're not the only one, but they uh, have beautiful, beautiful understanding of dog play behavior, and they make four categories of play from the gentle and dainty to the uh, rough and rowdy, which are like the wrestlers, the Greek or Romans that are like they're on two legs and they're wrestling and they're having making a lot of noise and having a great time. You know, there's no anger or aggression in it. It's just play uh, and chase 
chase dogs that like to, to pray, chase and play. I forget what the, all the categories are, but they have four categories that they look at. And it's really very, very valuable to make sure that the experience is good by not mixing gentle and dainty with rough and rowdy, because that wouldn't be any fun. And yeah, my, my comment was not a criticism on on shelters. Oh they're, no, no, they're yeah, they're typically yeah. all underserved in some form, right? Oh, totally. Yeah, they oh, you yeah. know they don't have the resources. Um, but in the future, you know, hopefully, when when the public understands this, there's you know more willingness to fund this, and you know it starts at every level. It starts from the volunteers saying, "Hey, we need this." It starts from the donors saying, "Hey, we support this." It starts from the shelter staff saying, "Hey, this is a value." So I'm always trying to educate people about the value of this. So even if we can't do it overnight. In the future, I hope that every shelter could have something like this to the best of their ability. Yeah. 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 Love it. Yeah. yeah. Love it. Love it. Yeah. So let's go out of, out of the shelter scene, out of the dog park. Um, and I, I want to use maybe Indigo as an example about mm -hmm. um, making a good dog introduction. Yes. So she's very leash reactive mm -hmm. and dog reactive. Mm -hmm. Um, and if she doesn't already know the dog, then she's like, yeah, <laughs> so how, how, what can we do in a situation like that? Yeah. So there are a lot of factors that go into a good introduction and a lot of factors or a few factors that go into a really bad one where things don't go well and, and the humans give up or the dogs get hurt, which is even worse. But so hopefully, um, the goal is to have safe and happy introductions. And there are a lot of steps that we want to consider. So I won't go through them all, but I just want to go through a couple of the major ones. So the first thing to recognize if you're, you mentioned indigo. So in the leash situation, leashes are really problematic because they're not natural to dogs. And of course, we have to have them because the laws say we do. Um, so, but the problem is, is that on a leash, the dog doesn't feel the same freedom to move the way they want to move. You, when you watch dogs meeting each other, there's a whole dance that goes on. Sniff the front, sniff the back. I sniff you, you sniff me. There's a whole little dance. And when it goes well, it's very brief and, and, very, and simple and easy and well done, right? But when it doesn't go bad, like on a leash where they can't feel like they can move the way they need to move, they get the stress re response and then things begin can go haywire very quickly. And you see those, you know, kind of tangle situations. So the first thing is just to understand that they they need the, the freedom to move in ways that, that are natural because otherwise, if they can't flee, then they will fight. And so we want to always make sure the dog has a feeling of where can I move away? You know, if they don't feel like they can get away, they're going to get stressed. And that's when we can see that um, more of that fighting style, you know, that, that, that rise in aggression, not necessarily vicious or doesn't have to result in a bite, but it could result in some tension and some growling, lunging behavior, things that we want to pay attention to. So as humans, dogs are in our lives, we have to really take good care to make sure that we understand dog social etiquette and the, the process that dogs have to go through. So, and one of the things, this is so important because shelter dogs, a lot of shelters make you bring your dog to meet the new dog, but the new dog you're meeting is maybe in a uh, stressed from being in the shelter environment, or your dog may be stressed from visiting the shelter environment. The the introduction goes terribly. The the shelter or the person says, "No, no way, I can't work. You know, this isn't going to work between me and my dog." And usually, it's it's often a bad introduction. I've seen so many of these go wrong, and it's hard because I I wasn't in a position to intervene as a volunteer. You know what I mean? I the staff doesn't necessarily want to hear my opinion, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> so one it, an ideal situation is if there is a 
barrier like a chain link fence where the dogs can see each other, sniff each other, but they have the freedom to move towards or away from each other so that they know that they have the freedom of choice. If that sniff, look, and move towards and away goes smoothly, then we can go the next step and have a situation where there isn't a barrier between them. So that isn't always possible. I'm just saying that that's an ideal scenario is like when we we often have foster dogs here or visiting dogs here. So they'll meet through our chain link fence first, the barrier, the gate, um, before we put them in the same physical space. So with the humans, it's very important that we're calm because if we start stressing, oh my God, there's going to be a bad, this is tense. Oh God, you know, the dogs are going to feel it. And our anxiety or fear or concern is going to go right to that dog and it's going to accelerate theirs. So the calmer we are, the more we give them room to have their own experience, to make their own choice. And dogs know innately, this is a balanced dog, this is safe, or this is not a balanced dog, it's not safe. So if they're telling you that this dog is not safe, they're right. There was one 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 day I had the opportunity to observe a dog's playing for life training at our shelter, and uh, they were going, you know, knowingly bringing in a very challenging dog, a dog that had to be muzzled, only could be walked by staff, had a record, all this other stuff, you know, a challenging dog that was not getting out because only staff could walk this dog. We have 500 dogs at our shelter right now, not enough staff, staff to walk these dogs. And um, so we had three very balanced dogs in the yard brought what we have a catch pen, which is, so there's a barrier between them, but they're inside. So they're inside this little interior fenced area before they go into the big play area. So all the dogs can see, sniff, smell, and feel the incoming dog. So what was interesting was um, in order to know whether it was safe to bring the new dog with the muzzle, the, the challenging dog, we'll call it a purple dot dog, because that's what we call these dogs. Uh, we have a color code for their behavior. So the purple dot dog with the muzzle in the catch cage, the other dogs, position themselves in a triangle, the three corners of the yard on the ground low, watching the new dog coming in. So this was an interesting sign. This said, okay, there's some, t they can sense that this is an imbalanced dog, but they weren't freaking out. They were calm enough and they were just observant, but they were had the three positions, almost like if they had to gang up, they could, you know, they could go from a very quickly from that position. So it told us, okay, it's an imbalanced dog, but it's it's safe enough to let the dog come in. And so by watching the reactions of the other dogs tells us a lot about the incoming dog. So this is why it's so important to get very, very observant. And we never want to discourage a dog from growling because growling, if we make them bad for growling, they're going to go to biting right away. They'll skip the growling stage. But mm -hmm. the growling tells us, tells the other dog, hey, you know, I'm feeling uncomfortable. And so the human and the dog can make an adjustment. And a healthy dog will make that adjustment. Now we're fostering a purple dog right now um, from the shelter, and she has very poor social skills and meaning she doesn't read other dogs' body language clearly. So I think we're going to talk about this more in the next episode, but um, it's very interesting because we have to sometimes intervene. And the way we, and she's a very sensitive dog. She can't be heavily corrected or she will flip. And so we have to very, very gently um, insert with our, we, we sometimes have to get in between. And then it's peaceful. It's just the, the the dog that's a little bit more vulnerable says, okay, you know, I have a person in between me and the other dog. And it's just, we call it fancy footwork by using our body. So I'm not correcting the purple dot dog. I'm just creating a, a, a little barrier. Now you wouldn't do that in a violent situation, of course, if a dog's were about to bite, you're not going to get anywhere in between that. But this is just a situation of, a, of one dog not knowing how to read other dogs' behaviors. So 
me being a bigger person than the dog, um, my just physically being in between the two is enough to give her, oh, back off. So that's what she needs to learn without me doing. And now what's beginning to happen is she's getting better, not perfect, but she's improved on that. And now the other dogs are feeling safer with her. So there's less panic running from away from her. So it's, it, it's a process, you know, it's, it's really very much about how careful, how accurately is the human observing the warning signals, the behaviors that say this is comfortable or this is not comfortable. People are the same way. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> it's just we don't have in, we don't have umpires to step in and say, okay, just step back, you know, just back off a little, give them some space. Let's be quiet right. for a minute. We'll resettle and then we can talk again. You know, can you imagine if we had that? <laughs> I'm wondering, that's a, maybe a new industry to start. <laughs> right, right, right. Nice. Visiting umpires. Yeah. Hey, let's take a quick break and then we've sure. got some more great stuff to talk about. Hey friends, if you like what you're hearing and want to learn more, check out Dr. Joseph's book, The Human-Animal Connection, Deepening Relationships with Animals and Ourselves. Or visit the website, thehumananimalconnection.org to book an online consultation. Thank you for loving animals. Now back to the show. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back, everybody. So the Human Animal Connection Show. I started to say um, my next question before I finished the introduction. Um, Getting ahead of yourself there. I oh, I do. God, I do. I'm tripping over myself badly today. Okay. So um, I, I frequently tell people that like Indigo is smarter than I am. Yes. <laughs> In a lot of ways, intuitively and you know, instinctively like that. But yeah, um, other ways as well that I want to admit on the show here. But okay. Um, <laughs> So you, you talk about dogs being social geniuses mm -hmm. um, and how they can read us like a book. Now, not all of them, right? Right. But tell me more about that. Dogs have this amazing ability to uh, notice, observe our emotions, our energy, our moods. And if you're living with a dog, you've probably seen this, that if you get a little stressed, they uh, are aware of it. They don't know what to do about it, but they're aware of it. Now, dogs that are specially trained are very, very good at this. But what's interesting, what I've seen in the shelters is about 20% of dogs naturally are just like superly good readers without any training at all. Other dogs can be trained to be more observant. But this is, there have been some interesting studies in on the science side with empathy in dogs. And what they mean by empathy is not just that the dogs can sense distress, but can choose to help. So the study was they had a person um, that the dog could see and the person in the, like a little room with the window so the dog could see what their person and the person would either sing twinkle, twinkle, little star, or they would cry or pretend to cry, right? And the silent signs of crying distress. And then they would observe whether or not the dog would go attempt to open the door and go and comfort their person. So these are... Uh, people who have you know their their dogs so it's it's an already a relationship built in i'm i think they might have done i 
can't remember if they did the study with people who didn't know the dogs too. Like, would the dogs respond if they didn't know the person, if it wasn't their person? I don't, uh, forgive me for not remembering. But anyway, the study was very interesting. And what they, what they showed was, is that if the dog could easily open the door and get to the person and comfort them, their stress level was lower. But if they couldn't get that door open, you know, couldn't navigate that door and they knew that their person was in distress, they went into deep distress. They went into mm. deep stress. So it was very painful for them to notice that their person was suffering without being able to have access and give comfort. So I think it's, you know, it's a really interesting study to, to see this in dogs. You know, this is a very amazing thing that dogs are so good at reading our behavior. And dogs who have not been traumatized are excellent readers of each own of, of other dogs' behavior. They read them, like I mentioned, that that's story about the dogs in the shelter, reading that incoming dog in a second. I mean, this dog hadn't even entered yet. This dog was still getting the leash sorted out and whatever. And they just knew, okay, let's get down low. It's okay, but it's not, we got to be vigilant. So they were in a good state, but a vigilant state. So dogs that um, are good at this are really good at reading people's behaviors. And these are dogs that could be easily trained to be emotional support animals. So, for example, when I work with veterans, one of the things I do is tr uh, try to pair them with a shelter dog that is a good emotion reader that cares about this person's feelings, and they can learn to alert. Like, so Sophia, my dog, if I'm getting stressy, she will notice it right away. Now, whether or not I notice that she's noticing, that's up to me. You know what I mean? Like, she's not necessarily going to come over and interrupt me, although she has at times, but she will um, let me know that I am moving too quickly, I'm getting a little too edgy, I'm late, running late, and I'm da, da, da. she doesn't like that energy. It's not comfortable for her. And I go, you know what? You're right. I think I'm going to slow down just a little bit. If I'm one minute later, it's going to be okay. <laughs> and what's interesting is Lulu, the dog that we're fostering, the purple dot dog, uh, who has a lot of issues, twice she's, uh, well, let me just tell you about PTSD trained dogs. They can learn to wake up their person from a nightmare. So if a person's having a nightmare, they'll wake them up. Lulu has done that to me twice. So she sleeps in the bed with me and only twice has she woken me, like, you know, come over, licked me, whatever, woken me up. And both times where I was having a nightmare and I was really grateful to mm -hmm. see that and very impressed, very impressed, you know, because here's this dog that is not, you know, had her scorecard on behaviors, like it's, 10, 12 pages long from the shelter of all her of all her problems. But but then you see something so amazingly profoundly sensitive and powerful as being able to wake up a person from a nightmare. And she's known me for only like 10 days, you know. So the fact that she can do this is pretty impressive. So you just never know what a dog's abilities are. I mean, some dogs will naturally, without any training at all, uh, alert their owner if um if there's an illness, like I'm going to go do a session today with a dog. The husband, unfortunately, is dying of cancer and the dog is very depressed and not drinking water and I mean, to the point of concern. So we're going to do a session to see if we can help the dog let go of some of the dog's grief that because the, the dog is very attached to the person who's dying. So, yeah. Yeah. No, so we'll that's see if amazing we can, work. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. I hope it goes well. <laughs> I think well, it will. Yeah. Well, I mean, it'll, it'll be what it is, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I mean, I know we'll, I know we'll get some benefit by just helping the dog to let go of some of the sadness and the confusion because dogs don't understand why is this person sick? You know, that they don't have a diagnosis that they, you know, that there's just, oh my God, my person is not 
doing good. It's scary and sad. And I think that his outcome is not good. And I think the dog senses that. Mm -hmm. So I have to have a little talk with the dog and let the dog know that, that yes, it's true that this is happening, but it isn't something that the dog can fix or has to take on as a burden. So I think it's really important that people, you know, as we're talking about connectivity and belonging, and it's important to recognize that different dogs have different needs for social connection, whether that be social connection with people um, besides the person that they live with or um, other dogs. And it's there's a range. Some dogs just really thrive by connecting with other dogs. And other dogs are like, oh, that was fun, but I want to go back with my person now. So that's that's really important for us to become aware of our dog's natural temperament and style when it comes to introversion and extroversion. So don't let our desire for them to be around a bunch of dogs force them into a position where they're uncomfortable. Exactly right. You know, like we yeah. we all, you know, maybe we've been told, oh, you know, your dog should play with other dogs or dogs need other dogs. And some dogs, it's really, really true. You put them on the group of dogs and they're going to just thrive and and really reset their whole nervous system. But other dogs, that's not so much fun. And, and and also it's dog specific. So even in the play group, I mean, we will have uh, the dogs all get rated for their play styles. And one of the notes in the note in, in the rating is dog specific, meaning this dog likes that dog, but not the other dog or whatever it is. So dogs can be socially selective. There are some dogs that are just everything is fine and other dogs, nothing is fine. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean that it isn't changeable, but it, it, it's changeable with a lot of careful work like we're doing with with our little purple dot, not our little, our big purple dot dog, because she's 56 pounds. <laughs> she's bigger than our other two dogs. So she's the big one in the room. Yeah, but she's bigger than the two of them put together. <laughs> she is, yeah. Uh, but today we had a lovely little meditation, all three dogs in a little room because there was work being done on the house. And so we went into a room where we could close the door. And it was like, wow, okay, all three dogs are here and they're doing just fine. They were happy as clams, you know. Uh, so, yeah, it's coming along, coming along. Love that. Love it. Yeah. Love, yeah. love love, it. Yeah. What else? Yeah. What else we got? What else we got? Well, I could tell you about bonobos. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I wanted to hear about that. Yeah, so bonobos, um, you don't see them in zoos because they, they like to make love all the time. <laughs> so they can't put them on display. But they, <laughs> they are a form of chimpanzees, and they use sensual contact as a way of solving all problems. So like if there's a conflict in the room, in, in the group, uh, you know, how are we going to solve it? Well, let's, let's be sensual. Let's have sex. So they they use this as their method of creating one of their methods of creating harmony in the group. So I just think that's really, really a fun story. And they are our closest genetic relatives. Like we have like a 98 or 99% genetic match to bonobos. So they're our closest genetic relatives. So yeah. So if you ever wondered if sex could solve problems, I think it can. <laughs> You've heard of makeup sex, right? Right, right. Exactly. So the bonobos do makeup sex you know, over nothing, like a little squabble over food. Okay. Things, feelings get hurt. Okay. Let's have some sex and everything will be fine. <laughs> I think that's a great idea. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Awesome. So I think that's a great note to leave people on is you yep. can learn more about bonobos and you can see some wonderful videos on YouTube. And um, next, next episode is one of my favorite concepts is the concept in the human animal connection. We talk about towards and away. So both in animals and in humans. So I hope you'll be with us for that one. I'm excited. Yeah. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you soon. Aloha. Aloha for now.
Thank you for tuning in to the Human Animal Connection Show. Please visit our website, thehumananimalconnection.org. There you can sign up for our free email newsletter, book a consultation, or check out our blogs and resources. Our best-selling book, The Human Animal Connection, is available on Amazon. And your donation of any amount keeps our nonprofit organization providing life-changing services. You can reach Michael Overly, author of Let Your Dog Lead, Musings on How to Create an Exceptional Life, on his website at dogsandmen.com or email michael at dogsandmen.com. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.